to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hello again, everyone. Let's talk smoke. Smoke-free policies are aimed at protecting the non-smoker. We learned from tobacco that secondhand smoke has thousands of toxic chemicals that can result in heart and lung disease for the non-smoker. The U.S. Surgeon General continues to warn the public that there is no safe level of exposure to secondhand smoke. California is proud to be a pioneer in smoke-free laws. In 1998, the state passed bans on smoking in workplaces, bars, and restaurants. Even the mental health wards, the last frontier that allowed smoking for a very special population, successfully establish smoke-free facilities. They give patients nicotine patches and smoking cessation assistance. Tobacco-free California helped decrease adult smoking rates, high school smoking rates, and lung cancer rates. Pretty good. Tobacco-free California also warns about marijuana secondhand smoke. They report that marijuana contains the same cancer-causing chemicals and toxic chemicals as cigarette secondhand smoke, but worse. They note that marijuana has more tar, ammonia, and cyanide. Marijuana can constrict blood vessels that results in heart disease and stroke. Unlike tobacco, marijuana can also cause a secondhand high and altered mentation. Non-smokers exposed to marijuana secondhand smoke in a room without ventilation tested positive for THC up to three hours post-exposure. That has to happen with a lot of smoke. Tobacco-free California has done a great job with tobacco. However, they've been bought by the marijuana industry. Click on the Tobacco-Free California website and you will be led to the Let's Talk Cannabis website. The website promises science, but delivers the marijuana industry talking points on responsible use. They report the legal issue on cannabis, but not the science on psychosis, heart and lung disease, autism, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, or the fact that every day we're treating marijuana poisoning in the emergency department. Last shift in the emergency department, I cared for a very sweet lady in her 50s. She was miserable from vomiting due to marijuana use. She told how she has been using since she was 14 years old. She now smokes from a bong continuously every day. She's been told that it's causing her scrometing syndrome, screaming and vomiting, but gets very anxious if she stops. That's the strong pull of addiction. This was not her first time in the emergency department with this misery she knowingly asked me for Haldol, and I complied. Haldol is a common antipsychotic drug, but is recommended in severe cases of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. My patient also reported having chest pain with her vomiting. I was not too alarmed as retching can radiate into the chest, but out of caution, I included cardiac tests. To my surprise, my 50-year-old otherwise healthy patient suffered a heart attack on top of her scrometing. In a study of nearly 4,000 patients, heart attack was 4.8, almost five times higher, 60 minutes following marijuana use. This was my sweet patient. Marijuana was hurting her intestines with scrometing as well as her heart. I wish her a complete recovery from her medical condition as well as her addiction disorder. Let's hear our question for the episode from someone who is concerned about secondhand medical effects of marijuana. Hi, I'm part of an organization called Breathe Free Oregon. You can find information about us at breathefreeoregon.org. One of our members suffers from cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome 
and experiences convulsions due to secondhand marijuana and CBD exposure, but all of our members experience negative health effects to varying degrees. None of us use marijuana or CBD. We want to raise awareness and share the research and data on the problem. However, simply presenting the research hasn't worked to change things. The biggest barriers that we've come across are one, people think cannabis, particularly CBD, is harmless or beneficial. And two, people believe that secondhand exposure has little to no impact on people. Can you please talk about the harms of secondhand marijuana and CBD exposure? And what would you say to address these misconceptions we've encountered? Thank you so much for your question on secondhand smoke and marijuana. And uh, in order to best answer your question, I thought I would bring you a high truth expert who has spent many, many years dealing with this exact issue. Our expert today is Dr. Paula Gordon. Dr. Gordon is an educator, writer, analyst, researcher, speaker, consultant, and independent contractor. She is an academic, having taught at institutions across our country, from the California State University System, George Washington University, John Hopkins University, and the University of Richmond. She's currently teaching at the Auburn University Center for Governmental Services and Eastern Kentucky University on subjects for homeland security, ethics, disaster preparedness, and leadership. She hosts various websites that are available on our High Truth show notes. Dr. Paula Gordon, welcome to High Truths. Thank you very much. And it's so wonderful to have you as our High Truth expert. I've been looking forward to this uh, interview and exciting conversation about something that we haven't really talked about. But let's get our audience to get to know you a little bit. Um, Paula, you've been an educator and leader on psychedelics and marijuana for several decades. And can you tell our audience what happened back in 1960 that created your focus? I was at the University of California in Berkeley at the time, and I um, heard about um, LSD and, and psilocybin and other psychedelics, and I got quite interested in, in that subject and met with the um, head of the Institute for Personality Assessment at the University of California and eventually got involved in a legitimate experiment in which I was given psilocybin, and that sort of introduced me to the effects of psychedelics. Wait, you got, they gave that to you while mm -hmm. you were a student? It was a, legit, a legitimate experiment at the time in the 60s, yes. Well, how was your high? What did you feel? You know, um, I don't know that that is really, um, I guess you could say that I felt that the same kinds of um, experiences that uh, most people who are reporting such things on, on psilocybin feel. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I learned from it was that during the experiment, another person there had a very bad experience. And uh, I became uh, aware of the fact that uh, the effects that these drugs, these psychedelics have on individuals is very um, much dependent upon the individual and their background and their um, mental health status and uh, and all kinds of other factors. Uh, and I, I became more deeply in, uh, interested in, in the subject, being aware at the same time of the very negative effects that it can have that psychedelics can have, and I um, um, pursued a, a deeper interest in, in the research and also looked into marijuana research and uh, discovered that uh, there were some uh, very, very uh, disconcerting effects that uh, needed to be known by the public that the public generally did not know about. I got so deeply interested in it, and I, I um, noticed I noted uh, that all the great interest and increase in use of uh, of everything from marijuana to LSD on on campus uh, by those on campus and uh, in Berkeley in general, 
and uh, I I decided to uh, establish a uh, an organization which would focus on trying to help those uh, uh, who, especially the younger young persons and individuals who are in college and university, uh, to um, become more informed about the harmful effects and to help try to dissuade them from using drugs. Uh, in the process of developing this organization, initially called Committee for Psychedelic Drug Information, wanted to make it kind of value neutral so that people would uh, look at the material uh, and uh, and uh, become informed that way about the harmful effects. It was eventually changed to Committee for uh, on Alternatives to Drugs. Uh, one of the things that we ended up doing, besides talking in, in um, high schools and in other schools and in the community and at the university had a number of meetings, panel groups at the university. Uh, uh, we also um, uh, did paraprofessional counseling. The organization that I established um, had about 50 members, all of whom were former users of um, marijuana and other psychedelics, and also some of whom had used experimented with uh, um, opioids. And we we found that it was very uh, effective to have um, persons who had a background in use who were no longer users and who were aware of the harmful effects who had succeeded in, in getting um, away from drug use entirely, used such individuals in um, school settings, especially high schools and at the university, to do paraprofessional counseling um, because we could understand where what had enticed individuals to experiment with drugs in the first place. We could relate to that very well. And we would have panels um, for instance, at the University of Edinburgh, of having uh, former users who would talk to large crowds and, and we, uh, on, on campus in the auditorium. The auditorium it sounds like you had that experiment uh, that you were part of had a very strong impact. Uh, and seeing the negative consequences of that experiment, on, at least for people around you, drove you to create... Um, a dialogue and education on prevention that you're that started way back then, but it's still relevant and still the same principles apply today. I would say that's that's the case. Um, I did meet uh, some of the leaders in in the psychedelic drug movement, uh, um, Richard Alford and uh, Timothy Leary, uh, and uh, that persuaded me all further that there were some very major drawbacks in using these drugs and that the people were um, really toying with uh, uh, mental disaster, among other things, uh, by getting uh, involved in uh, drug experimentation. So do you see history repeating itself? I mean, it was back in the 60s with Timothy Leary, marijuana and psychedelics and, you know, everybody, you know, songs and the Beatles singing about it. And, and now the drug is even more potent and stronger, and there's even stronger marketing and normalizations of it, we're just re repeating history. Very much so. Very much so. I, it really concerns me. And all, all of the the same kinds of um, feelings that um, I found in people who were uh, promoting experimentation or promoting research, actually, into psychedelics, um, um, I've tried to keep in touch or to reach out to them and let them know about the, the problems that uh, they uh, that can be experienced. And um, some of them are in denial. Some of them are as naive as I had been way back in in the 60s. And uh, so it's um, it is certainly history repeating itself. So there is a um, United States Senate Caucus International Narcotic Control 
um, a group out of the United States Senate, they published a report recently, just this year, March 2021, about the drug problem. Um, so really, they tried to address and acknowledge a problem and find some solutions. What is your opinion of that report? I know that you've been um, really looking into that. Well, I was really dismayed by the uh, superficiality of it. It isn't even as deep as uh, reports that had been done several decades ago. Um, and at least uh, people writing those reports cap captured all of the most negative and the most important, um, uh, much of the most important uh, research that had been up, done up to that time. But uh, major gaps, I think, can be found in, in the March report from the Senate, um, including uh, uh, all of the new research that's being done, voluminous research, uh, by researchers um, in different parts of the world, including uh, Australia, uh, who have done research, and Dr. Stuart Reese uh, and Gary, Dr. Gary Hulse have done research on um, uh, marijuana use and um, uh, throughout the world, and have, have discovered that there are um, uh, there's a increased incidence where marijuana is widely used. There's a incidence of a whole raft of birth abnormalities, and uh, they have accumulated. Uh, research uh, references and done a, a lot of writing and publishing themselves uh, and uh, some of which is uh, posted on my um, GordonDrugAbusePrevention.com website. So the report, they did, it's not all bad. You're just saying, you know, compared to the quality of reports that the Senate has produced in the past, this was superficial and didn't involve all the science. But they did mention... Um, FDA, NIDA, Surgeon General, federal partners, all um, speaking on the uh, risks of the products, especially to youth, mental health, and pregnant um, women. And it also talked about unfair and deceptive practices of false and misleading health claims by manufacturers without scientific support. And it talked about about impaired driving. I think a lot of Americans are united in the problem of drug driving and creating a standard field test for that. Right. And and to, from my vantage point, it is somewhat naive to think that anyone can drive under the influence of a low-level hallucinogen, such as marijuana, which I can regard as a low-level, low to high-level hallucinogen, depending on the, the content of the, uh, the, the level of uh, THC involved. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it, it's it could definitely naive. be high level. I've definitely seen patients in the emergency department with uh, agitated delirium. You would think that they were on bath salts and meth combined um, with such a violent reaction. And it turns out it was just like a, a gummy bear with very potent THC in it. Right. Definitely now, what, what is not recognized, and I've had conversations with Dr. Bertha Mandris about this, and she is in agreement with me that the Harris-Isbell study that had been done on normal human subjects way back in 1967, published in Psychopharmacologia, uh, showed that um, there were they found idiosyncratic psychotomimetic effects in normal human subjects. Now, what that means to me, and she agrees, that this this should have been the end of uh, our fascination with psychedelics. So explain what that, that means. That means a terrible psychotic reaction in, in plain English, right? From, from Right, in plain English, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So what's your view of the most serious and harmful effects of marijuana use, especially today? The idiosyncratic nature of it, the unpredictable nature of it, in other words, uh, the fact that um, one doesn't know, even the veteran user doesn't know when they have a negative experience. Uh, and the effects on the brain, I think, are, this has been under, was underplayed, I think, in the, in the Senate report. And that's that they, I don't think that anyone using common sense or who has had an experience of using marijuana 
would ever think that you could drive or operate um, heavy machinery or do anything of the kind because, in fact, it immediately can impair your sensory perception, your sense of time, your sense of reality. It distort, can distort uh, all of your perceptions, and you don't want a person driving under such limitations. Um, it, it's just uh, inviting. Paul, I think it's very insightful and smart of you to say that the worst part is that it's idiosyncratic. It's That means you have different effects. One person can have, you know, be fine and the other one isn't. And so wait, how come it affects different people and even the same amount in the same product differently? And also to the user, I used for two years with no problems. And now I'm in the emergency department with a head injury. Um, so I, and and people are in denial themselves. It's like, wait, I've used this for two years and, and now I'm having problems and they can't see for themselves what it's doing to them. Yes, and the people, I know you've, you've treated people with uh, cannabis hyperemesis uh, syndrome and uh, certainly many of them as reported by the um, uh, doctors uh, who have uh, filmed uh, the, the code red of uh, series of videos that are on YouTube. Um, for instance, Dr. Randall in, in Pueblo mm-hmm. uh, has uh, reported that uh, she had this just noted that people are in denial and when you tell them that that the, this uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome where people are uh, I think you coined the word in fact squamidine. Where That's right. That's the favorite word. <laughs> Screaming and uh, vomiting simultaneously. Uh, I see patients like that every single shift, every shift. And I've learned to be better at um, convincing people that it's their problem. I, I think I've, I've I've changed the way that I talk and and um, and use the word scrumming. So I think that that's helpful. And and the fact that um, it, it's out in the public that this is a phenomenon. This is not just um, you know, some ER doctor just telling them out of the blue that I, I get people to kind of listen. Um, I had a guy, my last shift, he missed his son's um, graduation from boot camp. He flew in just for that. And he spent that time in the emergency department scrummeting and, and missed an important life event from that. That was very sad. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely see that. Um Paula, maybe you could help us with some definitions. Um, what is, we know what, you know, marijuana effect or any drug effect is, that's the first hand effect by using it. But what is second and third hand smoke? Uh, I mean, it could be tobacco or, but we're talking about marijuana. What is second hand and third hand smoke? Uh, that's when you're the environment of someone who is smoking or in the environment where marijuana or uh, has been smoked and uh, it, uh, the, the uh, gaseous vapors from from marijuana can cause uh, the same kind of high, depending on the sensitivity of the individual. And this is another thing that isn't uh, well understood. In the 70s, I wrote an extensive graph on the subject, and uh, even at that time, there was substantial information and research done uh, showing that. Uh, there were uh, negative effects uh, being experienced by people. So secondhand smoke, we know that what it is for tobacco. It's if you're, you know, next to somebody, you're not the smoker, you're not using, but someone next to you is. Right. And uh, and we know that the same harmful carcinogens and toxins that are in a cigarette are there in a marijuana. In fact, more, more and, so. And, actually. More, and, more. and that's been known since the, at least the 80s, if not before. Uh, the National uh, Institute for Drug Abuse has an extraordinary um, monograph that they put out in right. um, 1984 about the, um, the different and um, reproductive disorders that can be caused by um, being around one smoke. Right. So we know secondhand tobacco smoke is bad for the unborn child. Secondhand marijuana smoke is equally bad. Right. And, and also, um, one, one of the things in, in one of my latest um, publications, uh, 
about why legalizing marijuana is a bad idea. What I've done in that is in that article is to trace the um, chain of research findings all the way from um, what happens if a um, fetus is exposed in utero to um, the exposure or the use of marijuana um, by those of any age, not just those whose brains are still developing. I think this is uh, this is not well understood by people in the research. In fact, there's been a lot of uh, focus on on just people under say 25, and um, brain experts disagree as to the um, length of time, period of time that the brain is actually developing. But I would argue even if the brain is not in developmental stage that can still do major damage to an individual. One of the things I'd like to mention is that um, Libby Stroop had come out, a uh, psychiatrist who did one of the Code Red videos uh, out of Colorado. Uh, she has a, a video on the connection between marijuana and the opioid uh, connection, she calls it. Um, and the um, what she did there was to point out these various research findings, both in animals and in humans, which um, makes the point that um, there can be brain damage and brain can be affected. Uh, I sent a, an early version of this article that I'm talking, telling you about uh, to uh, Dr. Nora Volkow, and she went over it with a fine-tooth comb and she came back with the suggestion of change of wording concerning the effect on the brain and she, she said it was a matter of the sensitization of the brain and, and in animals it's been shown as well that the sensitization of the brain. Uh, in animals, for instance, um, if you, sense, if you um, expose an animal that is um, uh, Pregnant to um, um, marijuana, that there, and then you allow, allow the offspring to grow up, that the offspring will, um, in an experimental situation, will be attracted to um, opioids given a choice of different things to be attracted to. <laughs> and this is certainly improving to be the case in, in, in teenagers, for instance, who are using marijuana. Uh, it's the synthesization of the brain uh, to to other drugs such as opioids, and uh, even um, Dr. Uh, uh, Jerome Adams, the previous Surgeon General, was very much aware of this, and he called it the, the priming of the brain. And this is what is so very serious, and which is was really, I think, very much overlooked. I have not yet met someone who was lucky enough to survive a fentanyl overdose um, that did not start their path with um, exactly. marijuana. Exactly. And large research with thousands of people. Um, and you mentioned Dr. Nida Wolkoff. She is the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which is part of the NIH, National Institute of Health. And um, large studies with thousands of people have showed that um, parents who smoke um, end up with um, children who, who do so as well. Right. It's a, it's a neurotoxin, and I think it uh, affects the, uh, the offspring. But very interesting idea, and I've seen this in the research literature, actually, and not extensively, but I did see it, uh, was that um, it, it's a, in, interesting to consider the possibility of the fact that we have the drug crisis now as we do. Uh, as being um, sort of uh, a carryover from the 60s and th that the genotoxic effects on each succeeding uh, uh, generation has rendered each succeeding generation of users more and more sensitive and more inclined to be polydrug users, which uh, is a very interesting way of looking at it. I think Dr. Dr. Reese in Australia is in agreement with that. The sad part is the the parents who used to be using were using 3% THC uh, content. 
while their children are using 30% and really high potency stuff. It's a really different animal, you know, not even a close cousin to what the you know, parents in the 60s were using compared to what the generation. You no, know, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar. I'm sure you're familiar with Roger Williams' concept of biochemical individuality. And uh, even in the 60s, he was writing about marijuana and how people, um, because of their biochemical differences, can have different reactions to things. And so it doesn't, I, I don't believe that it matters so much about the um, level of THC in marijuana. It matters uh, how sensitive the individual is for, for whatever reasons, um, genetic or otherwise, that um, uh, or predisposition because the parents have been users. Uh, it, uh, I, I, you're right that there's people who don't have as much of effect as the other. But, you know, when I started my career in medicine, I never saw anyone with marijuana poisoning in the emergency department. And now I see multiple patients every single day. So there has to be something with with the potency um, that's, that's different uh, from years ago. One comment I would have about potency is that um, uh, since a person, for instance, can eat as many edibles as they want to, no matter what potency is, um, and since they can smoke as many joints as they would, no matter what potency was, there's a cumulative effect of the THC in the body, and um, a couple of um, the um, the effects that I haven't mentioned as yet, which I discussed in my paper uh, that I wrote when I was a DHEW fellow on uh, side stream smoke, secondhand smoke of, of uh, marijuana. Um, it are, are two, two very unusual um, effects. One is the contact high effect and the other is flashback effect. And these can be explained. And, and tell, us what that, tell us what that means. We don't know what contact high and flashback. Uh, contact high is where a person who has been, who is either naturally sensitive or who has been sensitized as a result of having used um, psychedelics or marijuana, uh, it, the, their sensitivity to being, becoming high um, by simply by virtue of the fact of being in proximity to someone who is using. And uh, I know this sounds very strange, but um, there's such a thing as um, sympathy, a sympathy cry in children, which I think is one way of looking at this, where neurologically the um, children can be so attuned or so sensitized to one another that if one starts crying, another will start crying. You have the same thing where people uh, become uh, overly excited, say, in an in a, a athletic event, and everyone starts screaming. Uh, it's kind of contagious. This, this is one way of looking at it. Um, the the uh, contact eye can be uh, experienced by uh, a veteran user, can be experienced by someone who is simply uh, sensitized uh, as a prior user or not. Um, it's as if one were getting high or having to have it high imposed on them, in fact, which raises civil liberty implications. Um, and uh, So who, who gets a contact high? Somebody who's, um, is this a type of second-hand or third-hand effect? It can be, yeah. Yeah, in fact, um, I, I know someone very well who uh, is uh, in a, in a situ living situation where a person in an adjacent apartment is a user and uh, the um, aroma uh, is enough to uh, uh, cause the person in the adjacent apartment to... Uh, to feel the neurological things, as it were. Uh, and, you know, you, you only have so many things you can do in that kind of situation. Wait until you can open your windows again and uh, 
air, air your apartment out and use uh, air purifiers. There are some very strong air purifiers that can be helpful. And it's a very ticklish situation. And people in, or this is another area that uh, was not really dealt with that. Uh, uh, to an extent in, in the Senate report. These are kind of esoteric areas that uh, the people who know most about them are, are former users, former there, there are a group of people who are really much affected by that, not the majority, but there are people like our callers from um, Breathe Free Oregon. Yes. A group of people who are having these medical side effects from marijuana and they're not using it. They are right. getting it second and third hand and it's causing them, um, you know, terrible medical consequences. And it's hard for them to be taken seriously um, because they're not the ones using and yet we have that effect. And it took many, many years for us to understand that there are secondhand effects from tobacco. And um, I'm hoping it doesn't take us that long. Um, with marijuana. What's different with tobacco is tobacco doesn't cause psychosis um, and these, you know, neurological side effects while marijuana does. That's right. That's right. Um, I think um, one of the things that would be very um, effective uh, in an educational campaign, um, which we don't have anything like what's needed right now, but if we had an educational campaign which focused on uh, trying to understand the whole array of uh, harmful effects, I think it, um, including the effects on progeny, and this is not just, you know, we're not just talking here about um, the need for uh, women, you know, to stop using marijuana during pregnancy. I mean, that, that is a no, no, and this, this, there should be no question about um, the fact that they should not be using, uh, uh, but it, people who are men and women both who are contemplating having children should not be using because of the effect on their reproductive systems and their endocrine systems and the fact that it. Or in their um, genes. We, there's plenty yeah, of studies exactly. that show that the genetic mutations that exactly. occur, especially in exactly. sperm. Um, from marijuana. Exactly. And I don't think men, if men knew about this as much as, and I, not to mention women, but if men knew about it, I think that there would be many who would. I think um, men, men need to know about the testicular cancer and, yes, and, and yes. how it damages their sperm DNA. <laughs> Those are two things would be very helpful for them to know. Yeah. But um, I, I really, one of the, the, the quotes that I like the best about and this whole topic uh, was something that um, Governor Jerry Brown said uh, a couple. I think it's been over well over a decade ago now. Uh, he said that oh, we can't afford to have a dumbed down society, and uh, this is what happens by the widespread use of marijuana. No matter what it is, yeah. its level of THC might be, but you cannot have a Interesting how society has changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's frightening. It's very frightening, in fact. And Except a dumbed-down society. Right, and and this brings us to the topic of um, harm reduction. And uh, I I am a, an, a strong advocate for uh, stopping the use and doing everything to possible to help educate people so that they understood. The consequences of use, not only for themselves but and their progeny, but for everyone in their environment and for the society as a whole. Because, uh, as as Jerry Brown said, we can't afford to have a dumbed down society. One of the things that I um, have been very much concerned about, and I found it to be a, an effective argument, in fact, for people who are interested in using experimenting with psychedelics is that uh, it's something that is said uh, by um, uh, persons from the theosophical movement. And they have said that um, this can be found on a, a little-known website called the Spiritual, 
spiritualharmofmarijuana.com, spiritualharmofmarijuana.com. Um, what they what the theosophists say is that um, when you give up your willpower, you that is tantamount to giving up your soul power. And um, when people realize that willpower <laughs> is an important thing, that it it it's the soul thing is responsible for your being your being able to be an authentic human being and to understand and fully realize what your individual potential is. When they realize that, I think they'll think twice about um, letting becoming a slave in effect and to, to chemical dependency or even momentary chemical dependency. And that's something Dr. Um, Bob Dupont, who has been exactly. on our show, that's talks what... about chemical slavery and, and exactly. um, become a slave to that. Um, our caller um, from and sponsor of this uh, show from Breathe Free Oregon wants to know about uh, CBD and um, the, the toxic effects or, of CBD, or is it harmful? What do you think about CBD? Um, I think... One needs to recognize that that the FDA has, is not doing the job that it is supposed to be doing with respect to CBD. There, it it should not be advertised. Uh, people are are claiming making claims about its medical efficacy that they have no business making, and uh, which really uh, they should be uh, uh, kept from making by, by the FDA. Uh, and by by the um, by the government in general, um, I I think that you have to realize that CBD that is available today, since it isn't really, even if it were closely regulated, that it still can contain um, um, many uh, harmful. Um, uh, elements that um, are very much of concern to, uh, or should be of concern to, to users. And this has not been well. Uh, 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 There's not a lot of consumer protection. I, exactly. I, I want to defend the FDA because I, I, I do like them. And having worked in federal government, I, it was one of my favorite agencies to work with. Um, you know, they're limited by what they're able to do, what they can't do. But I actually would reference the FDA when it comes to deciding if you think CBD is helpful or harmful, because the FDA conducted studies on um, CBD that's prescribed medically. And that's a product called Epidilex. It's prescribed for people who have a very specific type of uh, seizures in babies, such as Dravet syndrome or Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And you could, I could prescribe today pure CBD. And so if I want to know whether CBD is helpful or, or harmful, all I have to do is read the package labeling of pure CBD. And in that package labeling, I will learn about um, suicidal ideations and liver damage and, and other um, problems. Um, so I would actually reference the FDA in finding out what the harms and benefits are of a product, because in order for something to be a prescription, we count on the FDA to do those studies. And, and, and I think they are doing their job in that sense. The things that, that is not regulated by the FDA are things, you know, the herbal products, um, and the FDA has sanctioned and sent letters, which is just really not enough, like you're saying, Paula, um, to a lot of the, the quack uh, people who are selling CBD with a cure for cancer and arthritis and everything else. Um, there's so many false health claims that the FDA simply can't like keep up with all of that. I, I'm really concerned that um, a, a young young friend, uh, the daughter of uh, a uh, friend of mine, um, gave birth to a baby that had extraordinary cardiovascular um, problems and um, I she was a uh, constant user of hemp products um, butters and things like that uh, I I think that um, 
Stuart Reese in Australia, Dr. Reese would be amongst the first to uh, agree that um, that that anything in the hemp family, including CBD and and uh, cannabis, should not be used because of the arteriopathic, genotoxic, enterogenic genet genetic effects. Um, it there, there's just too much research on it now, and this is one of the things that I would hope that the FDA, I know it's been brought to their attention, and Dr. Reese, in fact, has brought it to their attention as early as uh, several years ago. Uh, and I don't think that uh, I, a label warning, even for someone who's using epidiolics uh, uh, legally, uh, is enough to alert them to what's going to happen to the individual who, who's on that drug. Well, people who are epidiolex legally are babies too young to have to right in, but, in reproductive age. But you're but, you're talking about THC and CBD has teratogenic effects, meaning it messes up the the DNA when you're having a baby and can cause birth defects. Right, and, but also. Um, um, it can cause cancer as well, and yes. um, that that's another major problem. Yeah. What do you think needs to happen in order for our problem of drug drug taking behavior to be successfully addressed in America? What's what's uh, the gold standard here? Where should we be going? Uh, you remind me of a um, conversation I had when I had my my uh, organization on drug abuse um, prevention and uh, I had, was having this conversation with a potential donor and uh, I was saying that it was hard to raise the money that, I, that we needed for this and he said have you tried prayer? <laughs> and I thought you know, I thought in years since that time that that's a really good way to put it. Uh, I think this is a very time, this is a time for prayer because we're losing, uh, we're losing the nation. We're losing the nation to this. Uh, people are just not using their common sense and they don't, they're, they're believing what they want to believe. Many of them are engaged in totally magical thinking about this because it's a natural plant. No. Um, Jimson weed is a natural plant. Hemlock is a natural plant. Belladonna is a natural plant. But all of these are not, you know, without their major yeah. problems. It's interesting that you should say prayer. We did have a bishop on High Truths. And uh, yes, and he's definitely, um, uh, he doesn't see prayer as a, I mean, you know, prayer is a solution for a lot of things. Um, but but uh, prevention, is, you know, is something that he advocates for his congregants. And uh, I, I do see an, an analogy for solutions um, that we've learned in the past. We've learned on solutions on tobacco, um, and we've greatly decreased the, the cancer um, uh, tobacco caused by tobacco and tobacco use. Um, we've ended pretty much the opioid prescribing epidemic with by prevention, decreasing the number of prescriptions. Um, if we think of COVID and the pandemic as an analogy, um, we will end the pandemic eventually with a vaccine, not because of great ICU treatment, um, but because of eliminating, you know, people getting sick in the first place. So I, I think if if we care, and the question is, does society care? But if we care about the, the, the terrible outcomes that drugs has on society, the, the answer is in prevention. Um, not that treatment's not important, but if we really want to move the needle and, and make a change, and um, then prevention's important. And and we'll have to see. I don't know if our society is ready for that right now, but that's yeah. where the answer in, needs to be. In further response to your question about what we need to be doing, um, and effective pre prevention as well as early intervention, I think we're missing a great uh, uh, that's important. potential as a, as a result of our, our uh, failing to... Um, do everything we can to dissuade 
persons of all ages not to experiment with, with psychedelics, including marijuana, and to explain to them why. And one of, one of the most effective um, uh, presentations I've ever seen on the subject uh, is an exchange between, it is online, it's a two-hour video, and an exchange, it is an exchange between Dr. Nora Volkow of NIDA and the Dalai Lama, and it takes place, had you heard about this? It takes place, we have to look at. It takes place in Dharamshala in, uh, in uh, 2013. And I talked to Dr. Boca about her and told her that I just thought it was the best thing uh, that I'd ever seen and that it should be um, widely disseminated. And she talked about I met her at uh, NIH presentation she gave. And uh, she said that she would have her, her staff look into it and see about making a half-hour version of, of the exchange. But what they do in that exchange, she is showing the Dalai Lama during a workshop. Have, as some monks are attending and some, some other people, and it's all on, on the subject of addiction. And uh, she um, is showing the Dalai Lama, um, explaining to him uh, the effects on the brain, and, uh, and showing him slides uh, with a laptop uh, uh, and explaining uh, the effect on the a person's ability, for instance, to make sound judgments and the way that the, uh, that part of the brain is direly affected. The most important part of the um, video exchange, in my way of thinking, is the last uh, 20 minutes or so, where she is explaining, she's, she's just completed explaining the whole process of addiction and addiction cycle and how people get entrapped in addiction and how they're, they um, become unable to control them, their um, um, desire to and their um, need to use drugs uh, or their wanting to use drugs. And she talks about, and the Dalai Lama joins her in this discussion about how to uh, help people get out of the addiction cycle. And this is where I think we're missing out. We're not helping them to get out of the addiction cycle in the ways that we can. And one of the ways is to make sure that someone in their life is exemplifying to them a fully healthy human being that they can look up to and they can uh, get feedback from and that, that a person who will help them uh, or people that will help them um, regain their individual authenticity and their humanity and their ability to uh, be uh, creative and, uh, and to uh, uh, exercise their initiative on their own again and to be compassionate. And one of the ways to do this is to get them involved in service-oriented activities where they become as concerned for the welfare of others as they are for themselves. And of course, it's important that they become concerned for their own welfare. And here we have one of the greatest problems in understanding the whole prevention and early intervention um, process and how it can be effective, is that we're not understanding that a lot of the reason for the drug use that we see today, of all kinds, not just marijuana, is that people are nihilistic. They have lost any kind of sense of meaning in life. They've lost their purpose in life. They're just succumbing to doing something that seems natural and takes them out of having to be concerned about finding purpose and sense of mission in life and values in life. And um, um, it is said that uh, love itself can make a person a better person. And um, I think that this is a kind of uh, uh, message that needs to be gotten out uh, to people. And I know that a lot of the people that I've known who have uh, stopped using drugs have done so because of that, because of they, they realize these things. I like your punchline, um, Paula. It, it, you went from what we need is prayer to what we need is really love. Uh, <laughs> and what we, all we need is love, like the Beatles. Well, uh, on while, this, while they were high on uh, 
uh, on this uh, website. Um, that's one of the things that's um, highlighted on the website, Spiritual Harm of Marijuana. Mayor Baba uh, stated in, in the 60s, and this was the reason that many people stopped using drugs, he said that uh, if, uh, if LSD could make you a better person, then God would, would, is not worthy of being love. Of, of being God, and that um, oh, love will make you a better person than, than any drug can ever. And this, I think, um, it really influenced a lot of people in the 60s to stop using drugs. In fact, um, Richard Alpert stopped using LSD as a result of his communication. Mm-hmm. I have good points about having support, and I, I think the whole... Um, AA movement, NA movement, it's about having a sponsor. There's a big movement to have peer support for people who have overdosed or have addiction. Uh, so that human bond and connection and love is very much a, a important. I do want to tell our listeners about a new organization. They haven't already heard about it. Isaac, the International uh, Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Um, if you go to their website, isaacone.org, you'll find a medical library translated into layman's terms with points that we talked about here on this show about what is the data say about cancer and autism and, and pediatric use and cannabis hyperemesis syndrome and a whole bunch of categories of things with direct reference to the medical literature, but in a way that anybody can can click and uh, and know what over 15,000 publications on the harms of marijuana have already um, told us about. The Surgeon General had only 7,000 publications before uh, he wrote the little warning on the little tobacco cigarettes. And we have way more evidence now uh, on marijuana. So I do wanna, um, direct people to Isaac, the International Academy on Science and Impact on Cannabis, isaacone.org. And final question, Paula, how might organizations such as Breathe Free Oregon that are focused on raising awareness of significant harmful effects be as effective as possible? Well, I developed some courses, some online courses, three and four weeks in length through the um, Auburn University Outreach um, their auspices and um, all of the information on those courses is, is included on gordondrugabuseprevention.com. Um, these kinds of courses are really geared toward helping people who are engaged in drug abuse prevention activities become more knowledgeable, not only about the full range of uh, effects of uh, the uh, drugs, but the role that marijuana is playing in the drug crisis. And it certainly, as you can see from the people who are uh, you're seeing, uh, uh, explaining their nature role in, in uh, leading to poly drug use. Um, so we will definitely have a link to Paula's website and all her educational courses on the show notes. Um, my advice to Breathe Free Oregon is I want to really wish a rapid and complete recovery to all those who are affected by second and third hand marijuana s- smoke and exposure. Um, it's terrible to have chronic symptoms and chronic disease, which you guys have and have friends and loved ones who have. And I applaud um, your members of Be Free Oregon for uniting, organizing, and advocating for your health. No one cares about your health more than you do. So you have to advocate for your health, uh, even if maybe unpopular. And Dr. Paula Gordon, thank you for your many years of research, education, historical, and scientific perspective on the issue of drugs. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to Breathe Free Oregon, a group that's raising awareness on the secondhand effects of cannabis. To learn more, visit their website, www.righttobreathecannabisfree.org. In Oregon and around the country, people should have the right to breathe free of various toxins. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com.
We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.